1: Welcome to Weird Studies, this is Phil. This week, JF and I are talking about the 1987 film The Evil Dead 2, a slapstick horror film, or splatstick if you like, that is both funny and kinda scary. Exactly what that kinda means is one of the principal themes we develop in our conversation. The Evil Dead 2 is scary in a particular way, scary the way puppet shows can be. We talk a lot about the affinities between The Evil Dead 2 and Puppet Shows in this episode and how both end up invoking a spookiness that is in matter. I'm not talking about matter in soul, exactly. Matter greedy for life, more like. Matter in which life threatens to break out like some fungal corruption. The Evil Dead 2 represents a materialism in which matter is just what we suppose it to be, mindless and unliving but in a precarious and unstable condition, always trembling on the threshold of life. We are the things that were and shall be again, chant the deadites, as they are called by the medieval knights that appear incongruously and comically at the end. It's all silly fun, of course. This isn't a cerebral film in the least, and that's one thing I like about it. But the Evil Dead too, like the Punch and Judy shows we discussed in episode 88, could be enjoyable occasions for philosophy. They can also be viewed in quite another way, in a manner impatient of all philosophies and content with the shapes and gestures imminent to the artwork. I am very often in this mood when watching a movie or listening to music or what have you. We might call this perceptual mood formalism, a word I repeat a few times in this episode. Formalism is a dirty word for those who insist upon a sociological or even ideological understanding of art. Soviet officials used formalism as a term of abuse against artists like Dmitry Shostakovich, who found themselves accused of abandoning their social responsibilities and idly enjoying the empty play of patterns. To those who make politics their god, formalism is idolatry, And for such people, the art object, as such, is the golden calf round which the bourgeoisie dance. Well, those of you who have been listening to the show for any length of time know that I am all about idolatry. Break down the Guernica to its geometrical elements, map out the sonata form in a Mahler symphony, worship Baal, I am here for it. I could probably torture the Evil Dead 2 into a political reading if I really wanted to, But you know, I'd rather just talk about a diagonal splash of green goo on a dirty wall. One of those flaming images that Jack Smith talked about. Smith reminds us that our rapt absorption in the look and sound and feel of art can itself be a political act. If nothing else, a small act of rebellion against those who cannot understand art as anything but propaganda hey, now that American Thanksgiving is over, it's okay to put up the tree and ease into the season of giving. Any guesses as to who I think you should be giving to? Specifically in the form of Patreon memberships and dope t-shirts? Might I recall to your mind our content can t-shirt over on Cotton Bureau? Or shall I conjure visions, not of sugar plums dancing in your head, but rather of Weird Studies, music from the podcast, Volumes 1 and 2 by Pierre-Yves Martel, dancing all up in your earholes? We've got Weird Studies merch for your ass, and now is the time to be dropping broad hints to your nearest and dearest about what you want in your stocking. Okay, on with the show. <laughs> no, I love this movie. It holds up. That's a movie that dates from 1987, yeah. which is the year I began college. So I'm dating myself there. It's an old movie, is what I'm saying. But it holds up. It does I was 10 years old. Uh, I didn't see it in 87. I
0: must have seen it in 1990. I remember the first time I saw it. I convinced my mom to let me rent it on my own because I was homesick, and um she tried to argue that i shouldn't probably shouldn't watch that movie alone uh, i convinced her so i took the movie and i stopped watching in that early scene where ash gets attacked by the the camera <laughs> and gets like <laughs> pushed through the forest and then finally he's dumped in like a puddle and then when he comes up his face is all demonic right and he's been possessed that actually genuinely scared me and i stopped watching then and that's one of the things i love about this film is that it's hilarious you know, I call it Clowns in Hell, that movie. It's like a clown <laughs> show in hell. Um, but at the same time, it's also strangely creepy in parts. Or, hmm. I don't know, I still find some of the shots actually quite successful as horror. I remember watching it countless times with friends as a kid. And we'd always be laughing our asses off. But there was always a little part of me that was like a little disturbed at the same time. So I really admire that. about. That. I don't know if that's just me, but... Maybe it's because of that early time, that early experience of, I mean, you were older when you saw it the first time. I was,
1: and I didn't see it in the theaters when it first came out. I think I probably first saw it around 1990, 89, 90, after it it was on VHS. And it's one of those movies, like, this is Spinal Tap, I'm now blanking on other ones, but the biggest movies we remember from the time, or some of the biggest movies we remember from the time that died in box office like they didn't have a very impressive first run yeah i don't don't actually know if that's true of evil i think
0: it did okay
1: uh didn't do great yeah but like finding your audience in vhs yeah that was a thing from the age like that was around the time that that phenomenon the cult film that gains its following in kind of aftermarket release. That's really where that all started. And Evil Dead is one of those films. Films that are best enjoyed while stoned and therefore more successful on VHS
0: because it's easier (laughs) to get stoned at home in your basement than it is at the movie theater. You know, that's a good point. Yeah. I think that's, that's probably the drug war created the cult movie. I'll let the sociologists crunch the numbers on that, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. <laughs> I want to say though, we'll get to what the plot is and all, that's fairly simple. In fact, we kick into act 2 at the 5-minute mark in this movie. Like you're just launched right into the plot very, very right. quickly. You'd expect 20 right. to 30 minutes of build, but no, this movie is 5 minutes in and you're already like in the the sequence that will not end until the credits roll at the end.
1: Yeah. But um to, to borrow the, a title from Errol Morris, this movie is fast, cheap, and out of control.
0: It is indeed, but exquisitely made. Yes. You know, the camera work, what Sam Raimi does with the camera. The sound design. Yeah. It is unbelievably well made, like, and so carefully crafted, which is one of the things that's, that are so weird. You'd figure a movie like this, a kind of spoof horror, would be made on the cheap, in a rush you know you'd watch a bunch of horror movies and put together a script you know okay we'll make fun you know we'll send up the the genre but no it's made with incredible attention to detail little fast cuts that add the tension like one of my favorite shots in that film is when ash is trying to shoot his hand with a shotgun cuz his hand is like <laughs> gotten away from him its his hand is on the loose and it's, it's like a demonic spider that's scuttling around exactly and it's hiding in the wall so he can't see it, but he's got the shotgun and he's trying to like figure out where it is. So he's listening to yeah. the skittering of the hand behind the wall. And there's a moment where you hear a noise. Then it cuts to his ear in extreme close up, and you see his ear prick. And then boom, he shoots the the shotgun. It's like this wonderful like uh, supercut style that Sam Raimi really kind of invented. Yeah, and it's so well done. So there's this really really good filmmaking in this film, surprisingly it's otherwise it's just such a ridiculous
1: oh no this gets my formalism juices going. Yeah that's my formalism motor turning over. Yeah. I love craft. I love skill in the execution of an artistic plan or or vision, if I want to uh sound a little more pompous. But yeah, you know it I get the same feeling actually more than I did with Mandy of horror as an adjunct to the film musical. This is going back to our mm. Mandy slash bandwagon, like weird crossover episode that, yeah, right. that nobody listened to. Yeah. Because all the people who like bandwagon are like, I'm not listening to something about Mandy. And all the people who like Mandy are like, I'm not listening to something about the bandwagon.
0: Yeah. Genius. Genius on our part.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's my marketing genius. But um, just as with the film musical, in a film like this, everything is artifice. And I'm saying artifice, not in the J.F. Martellian no, way, I get the it. way yeah. you developed the idea of artifice, but everything is craft, let's say. Mm-hmm. Everything is skillful execution in service of a plan, yeah. a set of marks you want to hit, a certain way that you want to get from point A to point Z. And the formalism of it, also comes to the fore in those moments where we get more and more removed from verisimilitude so like for instance when the archaeologist's boyfriend <laughs> gets possessed oh yeah and by That's... the way i just want to say very briefly i love the archaeologist boyfriend's mouth after he gets possessed because he opens his mouth and you can see that the whole top like the roof of his mouth is just five or six rows of teeth going all the way back into his throat and i love a great little touch
0: i love what he does he he attacks uh, bobby joe the kind of like hillbilly girl he eats her hair hair (laughs) he bites her (laughs) hair off and eats the hair (laughs) to me that's kind of that freaks me out it's funny but it also kind of I don't know. I that's, find it scary. That's so
1: hardcore. <laughs> yeah. That's the worst part. Yeah. <laughs> so what What about that part, though? No, but like that guy, when he's dispatched by a few blows of an axe, you see this kind of green blood splashing on the wall. The classic horror film, like, you know, instead of seeing the axe head biting into flesh, you see the reaction, the, 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 mm-hmm. the blood spatter, except it's bright green and viscous. And it doesn't bear any resemblance whatsoever to blood, no, it's pure it's, flaming image, I find, um yes, the, the, absolutely, yeah, 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 and it's sort of like we're going to leave behind verisimilitude. The blood won't look like blood at all. uh, it becomes a pure formal gesture of gelatinous liquid splashing on surfaces, yeah, and it becomes and, and, like pure form and also the um just
0: the inherent weirdness of green like green is often associated with the weird in lovecraft and elsewhere. something about the greenness of the blood another example of that is when the camera so in this movie you get the villainous pov shot that's very common in horror right so you cut to a Mm -hmm. shot and you realize that you're in the point of view of the killer of the monster and so the monster's looking at the cabin it sounds like it's got a motor on it. (laughs) Like it starts to like (laughs) dolly really fast towards the cabin and then bursts into the cabin and you're still in that pov and then you're seeing ash the main character kind of run away from the camera so the way that this plays into what you're talking about here is that the cabin is fucking huge on the inside it's yes. got
1: tons of rooms on it's the a inside labyrinthian.
0: yeah but on the outside it's like this tiny one room cabin like or two yeah. room cabin yeah so it does a lot of it does whatever it needs to do for it to work something spielberg does in et which i find fantastic you know, we put the world together in our heads based on all these kind of discontinuous, disparate shots that create a, a singular affect in us. And I find that Evil Dead does the same thing. It breaks all kinds of rules of verisimilitude. It's almost like a, one of those, uh, a diorama, Evil Dead 2. You're almost watching mm. kind of figures in a diorama, mechanically doing these things together. Like, it's like the whole film's like a machine. With all these parts interacting to produce a kind of effect, but there's no realism in it. It's just it, the whole thing is kind of just pure artifice, but in the service of high art, I would say.
1: Yeah, it's like this machine that's taking along, although that's a misleading way of putting it. Well, It's one way of putting it. It's not the only thing in the
0: movie. But well,
1: you might think machine, and you might think of something lifeless and just going ticka 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 in a kind of a soulless and efficient manner. Think of a, like, you know, a soulless blockbuster, but it's, of course, the absolute opposite of that. Yeah. By the way, on en route to talking about whatever we talk about next, I want to mention one tiny detail that I didn't really notice the first million times I watched this film. But like when Ash tries to escape in his, what is it, a Delta 88, some classic car.
0: Yeah, Oldsmobile. And, yeah.
1: Yeah. When he drives out after the sun comes up, he's been possessed, but then the sun comes up and the possession leaves him. And oh, by the way, when that happens, since you've already mentioned that, when he comes to after being cured by the sun, yeah, there's this long slow motion. OK, in a film that reminds me of nothing so much as like, you know, hardcore punk albums from the 90s where you just have a series of songs and they're each less than two minutes and some of them less than 30 seconds long. And it's just like, they're short, they start and blam, like instant intensity. And you've just got this solid screaming wall of intensity until just suddenly ends and the next song roars to life. Like there's a real punk kind of, not so much ethos, but just like part of the aesthetic of this film, that kind of intensity, except when it doesn't have that. And that moment when Ash comes to and he's looking around... And you get a 360-degree camera pan. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it turns into a Tarkovsky movie for a beat. It gets super slow and super quiet. And then he tears ass in his Oldsmobile, realizes that the bridge is out, and then this thing starts chasing him. And in the middle of the chase, as he's driving, it's broad daylight. He looks over his shoulder. And then it cuts back to a point of view of the car racing down the road and it's night. Just like that. Boom. Instantly. Yeah, I know. The, the automatic assumption is, oh, well, they had to do that because the movie was made for about five bucks and that that's probably the usable shots they had and they had to cut them together. But it kind of goes with what you were saying before about the... It ends up serving it. I
0: mean, there's another yeah. in that very sequence. So Ash kind of recovers from the demonic possession. And sleeps off the entire day, basically, in that right. puddle, sleeps, and then wakes up just before nightfall. And he's trying to get out. So he drives to the bridge, finds the bridge destroyed by the demons. And then it cuts to a shot of the sun setting behind clouds. And the camera pans, and Ash is brought into the frame. And it's this beautiful rear projection shot oh, yeah. from like a Hitchcock movie. And it's like a mid fifties golden age of Hollywood shot. That's right. But the th- and it's like, what is this doing in this movie? Because they had to do an actual rear projection shoot to do that, to make that shot. So he, he's like, he wanted that shot in the movie. Yeah. It's not like accidental, you know? So it's like a lot of work to make this kind of scrapbook aesthetic where you're cutting from one type of film to another constantly. I was just totally flabbergasted by the amount of work that went into this film watching it this time around it's crazy yeah but you're right and, and, and there's some serious problems with uh, day for night and and time of day in the first 15 minutes of the film it's like what the fuck is going on it's like bright daylight yeah. and then it's night and it's like yeah uh, yeah i think yeah. those were probably just uh, not mistakes but necessary choices they had to make editing wise but uh and they did have a, a much bigger budget than they had for the original evil dead of which this is essentially a remake because Dino De Laurentiis financed this movie, and um, and so they had more at their disposal, and you can see that in what they do. Like the the final scene takes place in the Middle Ages, and it's done cheesily, but it's still done. You know, they have yeah, forces no, and armor and all that. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm.
1: Let's do the plot, right? Okay, Uh, (laughs) let's do the plot. I'll let you start. I mean, it's what Joe Bob Briggs calls the standard spam in a cabin plot. I think that's where I first heard about The Evil Dead, was from reading Joe Bob Briggs, a name probably not familiar to listeners. He used to be big in the 90s. I liked him. It was a film reviewer who had a shtick that he played a sort of Texas cowboy who had an encyclopedic knowledge of sleazy drive-in movies. Anyway, so... Joe Bob Briggs was one of the leading theorists of the Spam in a Cabin movie. The Spam in a Cabin movie is always going to be like a great go-to for low-budget horror. Because for one thing, it's a pretty limited set. You need a cabin in the woods. You got woods anywhere. yeah. A cabin has got to be one of the easier things to mock up in a set. But I digress. Um, we see ash and his girlfriend linda at the beginning driving into the country going on a romantic weekend ash is sort of vague about whose cabin they're staying at and you get the sense that he just knows that this cabin is up there but no one is ever there yeah and so you know he's trying to have a romantic weekend on the cheap at least that's what i feel like we're given to understand yeah they get to the cabin they settle in. Ash plays a romantic tune on the piano as his girlfriend dances. waltzes around, pirouettes around the room. Anyway, so it turns out that the people who own this cabin is like a, an elderly archaeologist and his wife, and that this guy has obtained a deadly book called the Necronomicon Ex Mortis.
0: <laughs> Which is, for any like nerd Latin, out but out there... there
1: doesn't no, it's, that just mean the Book of the Dead by the Dead?
0: Well, it's actually a mixture of Latin and Greek. Necronomicon basically means Book of the Dead. Ex Mortis of the mean,
1: Dead. Yeah, so it's the Book of the
0: Dead <laughs> f- from the Dead or of the Dead. The Book of the Dead of the Dead. <laughs>
1: it's, just, <laughs> it's like yeah. extra dead. Yeah, which is yeah. perfect, right? Yeah, perfect. Anyway, there's this evil book with like a face stitched onto the cover. I love the little animation at the beginning where we have this portentous voiceover telling us about the Book of the Dead. See the face? He goes, goes, The Necronomicon Ex
0: Mortis, roughly translated, The Book of the Dead. (laughs) 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 And uh, so the Book of the Dead is a gateway, we're told, at the very beginning. A gateway to another world. The world of the dead. But we're not talking about just the dead, like ghosts here. We're talking about the evil Fucking dead. Fucking demons. The yeah. evil dead. Yeah. Those, as we're told later, we are the things that were and shall be again. Point being that this is like the ancient, ancient dead. The Book of the Dead, we're told, the Necronomicon Ex Mortis, was written, quote, when the seas ran red with blood. And we all know how long ago that was. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Anyways. Okay. So, yeah. anyway. <laughs> It turns out that the archaeologist had read out the opening incantations in the Necronomicon into his tape recorder, and Ash curiously presses play, and it ends up playing this demonic incantation, which opens up this portal. Linda is immediately abducted by some demon that we see point of view crashing into the cabin, and then possessed, she attacks Ash, who decapitates her with a shovel.
0: Yes. That happens to be right there where he needs it. Yeah.
1: Exactly. A brand new shovel, too. (laughs) It looks like they literally just bought that shovel at the hardware store and put it on the set. And who knew that one windmilling blow of a shovel is enough to remove a human head and send it arcing like 20 feet in the air? Yeah. But this whole film is cartoon logic. Yes. Dream dream and cartoon logic, for sure. Yeah. Ash is unkillable, indestructible. He undergoes innumerable yeah. blows that would kill any normal person. But he's made of rubber. He always bounces back. He has a variety of interestingly painted blood patterns on his scalp. And a lot face. of blood, but uh,
0: you don't see any cuts. Just yeah, blood on exactly. him. Yeah, <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah, not a mark
0: on him. <laughs> no, he's
1: amazing. He's like, one of the great heroes of, of the genre, for sure. But in any event, so, of course, Linda Returns all hell starts breaking loose. He eventually has to cut his former girlfriend up with a chainsaw into itty-bitty pieces. Then his hand becomes possessed. Mm -hmm. His hand turns on him and tries to kill him, knocks him out, and as he's knocked out, the hand sees a cleaver, and we can only imagine what the hand is going to do with this cleaver once it gets a chance, but before it has a chance, Ash cuts off his own hand with a chainsaw. He transfixes it with a knife to the floor. Yeah. You know, revs up the chainsaw by pulling on the chain, the like the rip cord with his teeth and screams, "Who's laughing now? Yes. Who's laughing now?" which is one of the greatest moments in cinema history and chainsaws his own hand off
0: because the hand
1: while it was possessed
0: was constantly giggling <laughs> you know but that, his hand was it's a very uh, so like there's like buster keaton level acting in here on uh, bruce campbell's part when his hand yeah. is possessed and he's fighting his own hand and his hand is like he's <laughs> like it's knocking like, him over the head with the dishes you know one after yeah. another breaking plates on his head it's like masterful stuff it's really really good slapstick uh comedy I think at one point he grabs himself with his
1: own hand and flips himself like a a front flip onto the floor. (laughs) It's really amazing. No, that's some Donald O'Connor shit. That's like talking about film musicals, like, you know, the old make him laugh routine from singing in the rain. Yeah. If you don't know it, I suggest, you being the listener, I suggest you run to YouTube and watch it. It's incredible. And that was a set piece that allowed Donald O'Connor, who was a old time song and dance man who knew all the tricks of the trade, the old vaudeville routines and so on. It was an opportunity for him to bust out a whole bunch of very acrobatic vaudeville routines. And again, it, I'm struck by the parallels that you have mm-hmm. set pieces that allow for virtuoso physical acting yeah. for virtuoso stunts and routines. Except of course it's done in this kind of horror style. Yeah. Anyway, so he chainsaws his hand off, his hand escapes, and that's the scene that we were talking about where he's taking shots at it. At one point, he falls asleep, has a nightmare, wakes up, and starts going bananas. That's and actually the whole... great. That, that section is really interesting. We can talk about that. Yeah, let's loop back for the famous laughing room scene where he's laughing maniacally, and the whole room comes alive. All of the objects are laughing along with him. Yeah. Anyway... A couple of people turn up. The daughter of the archaeologist, who is an archaeologist herself. uh, Her blonde boyfriend. who Preppy boyfriend. Yeah. And a pair of backcountry types. Bobby Joe. And I forget the name of the guy. Me too. Daryl? Let's call him Daryl. Daryl, sure. I think it's Daryl. Yeah, go on. They turn up. They end up battling the witch in the root cellar because we realize that the archaeologist has had to kill his own wife, just as Ash has had to kill his girlfriend because she became possessed, and he buried her in the root cellar. And so this monstrous, foul witch, the dead Henrietta, comes back, and they do battle with her. Yeah. Played, incidentally, by Ted Raimi, Sam Raimi's brother. I, I, again, the witch scared the crap out of me, even this morning. I'm going to be real with you. I've never been scared by this film. Not even a little bit. It's just not that kind of movie for me. I'm not saying that it is inherently, like, not scary, but just that I've always appreciated it on a somewhat different kind of level. Yeah. I don't know. Is that a bad thing to say? No, I mean, it's
0: quite subjective. I'm just saying that to me, mm. some of the little touches add a note of horror in it that I can't shake. Maybe it's because I first saw it and I was quite young.
1: And so it brings me back to that. The witch head poking up from that, the root cellar door, which is being, it's being held by a chain that's about six inches. So like just a little six inch crack with his face poking up. I mean that's a fucking archetypal great image of horror of something in the basement that wants to get out and it's beautifully executed but for whatever reason yeah it doesn't well i mean yeah
0: it's the closest a film has ever come to like a fairground horror ride you know you go to the haunted house on the fairground and you see these kind of cheap animatronic things and you hear like, like really loud, sudden sounds and that's what's passing for horror. But when you're a kid in those haunted houses, or even as an adult, um, it can get, I don't know, it's startling. And sometimes there's always one image in those fairground haunted houses that, that haunts me after it's like, Oh, that was kind of creepy precisely because it's so fake. Right. You know? And it's almost like this film was like, let's make a movie in which, The true horrors look like fairground horrors. There's a moment where Ash goes, um, at the end, it's like that moment, that prise de conscience, that moment where he's like, okay, we're going to beat this thing. And he's like, they have to go down into the basement because Daryl, whose name is Jake in the movie, by the way, Daryl throws the pages into the base, the crucial pages that contain the incantation to exercise the the demonic force. He, He chucks them into the cellar for various reasons, doesn't really matter. Then Ash decides to go down there and recover the pages, and he says, let's go down there and carve ourselves a witch, which I think Mm -hmm. is a fantastic (laughs) line. But then the camera pans down into the darkness beneath the cabin, and you see the witch in the dark, like, waiting for
1: them. It's just I found that really good. It's a good scene. Yeah. No, you know, I want to be clear about something, too, which is when I say that it's not scary, that's obviously... Not scary to me, and that's obviously a subjective thing. But what I don't want to be confused with here, or I don't want my position to be confounded with another one, which is to treat this as if it was just camp. Right. Because I don't think this film is camp. At least in the sense that we were talking about it a couple of episodes ago. You know, Charles Ludlam is talking about when he's like, oh, it's this awful camp of people who don't mean it. Right. You know, where you, you pretend a faction for some piece of pop culture, detritus, but you don't really mean it. Mm -hmm. You're just kind of enjoying it because you think it is quote unquote, so bad. It's good. Like in other words, you don't have any interest in approaching it on its level. You're not trying to see through its eyes. If you see what I mean. Yeah, totally. And, I would resist any such interpretation of this film that I think that it's obviously goofy and slapstick. It's intended to be funny. Indeed, it is funny. But at the same time, I think it's also, and maybe I I think that's because of like a commitment of formalism allows you to be both serious and ironic at the same time. Yeah. That there's a kind of love and care that has been taken with this film. To make the scares spooky, to yeah. make the scares work, to make them work technically, to make them work as dramatic beats,
0: while remaining funny, because you know when when yeah. the witch turns into a kind of ostrich monster, yes, it's funny, but it's also it, it kind of gr- gross and kind of weird. Yeah, he chops her head off, and as she's dying, she's she, they put in the sound of a deflating balloon, like the thing. Yeah, is, like, I love that. <laughs> which is which is funny but also scary yeah they got attacked by an obvious dummy like a puppet but it's a real puppet and as a it's a scary puppet you know there's something about it that walks this line between artifice and a kind of genuine engagement with the genre which i find really really interesting uh and makes it very different from army of darkness which i think is a lot more just a comedy
1: to me yes i agree yeah yeah i think you said the magic word puppet That when I was re-watching this, I found myself thinking, this is a puppet show, and I'm not saying that in a bad way. Not in a demeaning or belittling way, but think about, you know, Punch and Judy, you know, which we talked about in our Mr. Punch episode. They're obviously puppets hitting each other with sticks, but the fact that they're puppets doesn't make us not care about what's happening on the little puppet stage, it means that Human things are being reframed within the sphere of a weird materiality. There's a way that we have of thinking about special effects in a horror film or any kind of film with effects, where we're thinking in terms of a representational model. The special effect represents or imitates something that we can't actually show you. I can't show you Louis Del Grande's head exploding, so we're going to have to figure out a special effect in Scanner's to give us the impression that his head is exploding. Right. Right, And so we judge the special effect in terms of how similar it is. Although even that is like slightly complicated, because sometimes things that are considered amazing effects look very flimsy and transparently artificial to later audiences. But I'm going to leave that off to one side. In this particular case, if you go into this film thinking that the effects should have... That kind of relationship with material reality, then you're probably going to lean towards the idea that this is camp because you're like, well, I can't possibly believe in green blood, right? Yeah. I can't believe in the headless, like elephant floppy monster that makes a sound like a deflating balloon or a cabin that's twice as big on the inside as it is on the outside. Right. And so I could be like, oh, okay, so we're just fooling around here. This is all for funsies, and I don't have to take it serious. But no, the genius of the effects in Evil Dead 2 are that they're not actually after that kind of verisimilar relationship, that kind of representational relationship with reality. It's like a puppet show. In a puppet show, you're not trying to make the puppets not look like a puppet. That would be really creepy.
0: A puppet show where the puppets look completely convincingly human would be a puppet well, show that Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: well then you get something like, you know, certain CGI films like Polar Express that end up in that kind of uncanny valley sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. Likewise the, the puppets or the 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 various I mean there are some actual kind of puppet figures in, in special effects. I mean Raimi emptied the clip in all the things you can do for under 5 million dollars. Yeah, stop motion. Yeah, Harryhausen yeah. style stop motion things, mats. I mean, you know a lot more about the technique of this than I do, so you'd be in better position to enumerate them all, but suffice it to say though, there's objects in this thing like the green blood, like the monsters or whatever that like no, don't understand them as faulty representations of what you want to see, the real thing, somebody really getting hacked up with an axe, understand that you're watching a puppet show, that these look exactly the way they're supposed to. Yeah, exactly. But the puppets are playing out something that's scary. The horror is in the materiality of things. I
0: I think one of the things I love about Evil Dead 2 is how material the horrors are. It's a strangely Lovecraftian film, right? The Necronomicon is obviously a nod to Lovecraft. The great old who, ones coming who back. Who was quite
1: obscure in 1987, so that would have yes. been a deep cut for horror fans back in the day. Exactly. And also the, um,
0: just the materiality of the various demons. So they show up in flesh and blood. Uh, there is a very interesting sequence in the middle of the film where Ash is alone and after he's cut his hand off, where uh, there's a really like a series of scenes that are blurring the boundary between the psyche and the physical world completely. So he'll have a dream sequence, and he wakes up, and then what was in his dream yes. shows up. There's this looping, this, these nested realities. He's, he's like stuck in a dream. He keeps waking up from a dream and finding himself in another dream, right? There's a sense yeah. of that going on. And in that central section, he's actually going kind of crazy. So the film becomes very psychological at that moment. And then it goes right back to being pure material horror after that. So these are Lovecraftian monsters that are very different from Lovecraft's monsters in the sense that you can cut them up with a chainsaw, you can beat them, you can punch them in the face, you know, as Ash does to that ostrich creature repeatedly. Um, It's a (laughs) puppet show. In a puppet, everything is material, right? Everything becomes a material object. Everything is incarnated. It's an incarnation of metaphors. Yes. It's like the metaphors are dancing around in front of you. Yeah. And so it's not representing. I love the way you've put it. It's not representing what really happened in some fictional cabin. It's creating its own reality, its own exactly. laws, its own physical laws. Like there's no way that Bruce Campbell could have survived the beating that Ash takes. <laughs> you know? like yes. It's a beating that only a puppet could take. Exactly. And he gets
1: up just
0: like a puppet, just like Mr. Yeah, Punch. Exactly. Gets back up and he's back at it like he's in prime form, even though he's covered in his own, in his own blood.
1: <laughs> yeah. And this is the thing. It's like weird materiality is a thing. This is something we've gestured at in the show. And it's come up in the course that we're teaching as well. You have said on multiple occasions that we're not past materialism. We never really even got to materialism. We, mm. have, we don't know what material is capable of. We don't know what matter is. Am I paraphrasing you correctly? Yeah. Yeah. And it seems to me that the puppet show has got to be a ground zero for a concept of like weird materialism or weird materiality at any rate. Yes. I'm not much of an ist. So even though I'm interested in exploring materiality more, I'm not interested in becoming a materialist, either a weird or normal variety, but in a puppet show... That's a part of our life where we get to get down with material and the strangeness that is in material. What it is to see a horrible thing enacted with material that is obviously material. They're not flesh and blood creatures, they're puppets. And yet there's something intricate and strange that goes on there when we watch something like that. So I want to read the first couple of paragraphs of the book that you turned me on to, Kenneth Gross, Puppet, an essay on uncanny life. I love that book. No, it's beautifully written, poetically written even. And it pursues this interesting thought. A puppet is, as Kenneth Rose writes uh, somewhere in, I think, maybe the second chapter, that the puppet is the ambassador to the human world from the material realm. The ambassador of the world of objects. Yeah, exactly. So here's the opening of the prologue. What is this thing that I recognize that seems to know me when I come upon it on a street corner? in a park, or in the shadows of a theater, moving up on that small stage? What is this creature that burrows out of shadows, into the light, a remnant of something? Hard-headed, often squeaking and ugly, moving with such odd, unpredictable motion, or just lying still, folded up on itself, a little warm, patiently gathering strength for some new movement. I wonder about the world in which this creature lives. I wonder more what it knows about our world. The madness of the puppet. It lies along a line or spectrum of things. It might be a very ordinary form of madness. The madness lies in the hidden movement of the hand, the curious impulse and skill by which a person's hand can make itself into the animating impulse, the intelligence or soul of an inanimate object. It is an extension of that more basic wonder by which we can let this one part of our body become a separate, articulate whole, capable of surprising its owner with its movements, the stories it tells. I call it madness, but it is perhaps better called an ecstasy. It lies in the hand's power and pleasure in giving itself over to the demands of the object, our curious will to make the object into an actor, something capable of gesture and voice. What strikes me here is the need for a made thing to tell a story, to become a vehicle for a voice, an impulse of character, something very old and very early. The thing acquires a life. As I read that, I'm thinking, well, he's focusing on the hand, and so we're given to imagine a hand puppet. But there's other kinds of puppets where you use, for example, use rods to control the arms or the mouth. String puppets, yeah. Yeah, string puppets. And in the laughing room sequence, the whole room is a room full of puppets, and they're animated by hands that are, through the magic of film, entirely off-screen. That is to say, it's stop-motion, right? I think, for instance, the lamp that's, like, moving up and down in a kind of hee-hawing sort of, like, laughter, that's stop-motion. So hands are moving these things, but the hands are not even in contact with the objects that we see on the screen, right? So the hands can be absent, but there's still the sort of way that the life of the hand or the life of the human, the hand here is a metonym for the human. The life of the human is a contagion. Yes. It's like something that infects matter.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's a a wonderful book called, uh, we've mentioned it before, cannibal metaphysics by, um, Eduardo Viveros de Castro, an anthropologist, who basically has observed quite counterintuitively from how most modern people think about indigenous peoples, is that the indigenous peoples that he's worked with in the Amazon tend to think that everything in the world was once human and everything wants to be human again. Oh, just like the evil dead. Exactly. So oh. when you, when you <laughs> if you want to nice. think about this animistically, you could say something like, if you paint a face on a rock, or if you scry, if you glimpse a face among the clouds, you're not projecting a face. You're creating an interface for some latent human-like thing, consciousness, to, to become accessible to you. Something that's already in matter. And the puppet in Gross's book, what I love is like, the puppet is the ambassador of the world of objects. Meaning what? By giving a human form to an inanimate object, we allow the inanimate to become animate. It's like a reversal of uh, Freud's death drive Mm. where the inanimate gets its wish, which is to become animate. Pinocchio becomes Mm. a real boy. And that's exactly what's, like you just pointed out, that's exactly what's going on in the evil dead, is that which is dead, that which is inanimate, wants to be alive again, and it will take whatever form it can. It will become puppet-like. It will take on a puppet-like form in order to, to manifest itself. It's funny because my nephew, Florent, pierre son, was doing a project on Dungeons & Dragons for his school He had a presentation to do. So for that, he interviewed me, like interviewing a dungeon master, him and his friend. And one of the questions that his friend had for me was, how do the undead live? That was his question. Florent's questions were all like, uh, how do you run a game that sort of thing and his friends questions were like how can the undead be alive and how fast can a dwarf run <laughs> <laughs> like just random questions but well, the undead are not alive that's why they're undead they're dead but animate they're in they're this yeah. in-betweenness and yeah. the, the idea that you get from reading cannibal metaphysics is that the entire natural world is kind of like, first of all, animals are essentially humans trapped in animal bodies. But what De Castro makes clear is that in embracing such a way of viewing things, the human becomes very different. The human ceases to become what the human means to us. The human becomes very alien. The point is that it seems only appropriate that the creatures in Evil Dead would take the form of cheap looking stop motion puppets because that's the best they can do. You know, until they can become fully enfleshed. one place where this idea of matter being much weirder than we normally think of it is in Bruno Schultz's wonderful book, Street of Crocodiles, where there's a section called Treatise on Taylor's Dummies, or the second book of Genesis. It's a wonderful title. And uh, it essentially starts as a monologue by the narrator's father. The narrator's father is, um, everyone in this book is a little off their rocker, it seems, when you're reading it with our our standards of sanity. (laughs) Um, But the father says the Demiurge has had no monopoly of creation for creation is the privilege of all spirits. Matter has been given infinite fertility, inexhaustible vitality. And at the same time, a seductive power of temptation, which invites us to create as well in the depth of matter, indistinct smiles are shaped. Tensions build up attempts at form appear. See attempts at form. Mm. The whole of matter pulsates with infinite possibilities that send dull shivers through it waiting for the life-giving breath of the spirit. It is endlessly in motion and entices us with a thousand sweet, soft round shapes, which it blindly dreams up within itself. All of street of crocodiles to me is a reflection on the the nature of matter. It's an attempt at developing what would be a real materialism. And Victoria Nelson makes much of this book in her book,
1: the secret life of puppets. Well, Funny you should mention that because I wanted to bring up something in Secret Life of Puppets. The first couple of chapters of this book deal with the idea that we find in the Corpus Hermeticum. Is it in Poimander or Asclepius? Asclepius is the statues? The statues, yeah. Asclepius, yeah. Yeah. So for the ancients, the divinization of matter, the ensouling of matter is of primary concern, primary religious concern. And there are all kinds of ways that, you know, ancient Egyptian mysteries were all about the passage of matter to what we would think of as immaterial realms. The idea that mummies would literally walk from this world to the next world. Not some spiritual essence of the mummy, but the actual physical mummy. So, for this reason, and for other reasons, there's a a real focus on the idea of, like, the divinization of matter. Mm -hmm. So, one of the manifestations of this is uh, the presence of objects of wonder in the ancient world that are attested by classical authors as having wondrous powers, you know, statues that sing or prophecy. And... She talks about one that has survived to the present day. This is on page 40, 41 of Secret Life of Puppets. Sure, the bottom paragraph, she says, Yes, but our skeptical voice of epistem must finally interject. Just how was this wonder of living statues manifested in the material world of cause and effect? Confirming our worst suspicions, Exhibit A is a first century CE bust of Epicurus with a hollowed out center culminating in a discrete hole in the great philosopher's mouth, which the scholar Frederick Paulson concludes was made for a tube through which a priest crouched behind a wall could speak, allowing the head to act, quote, as a veritable oracle with a voice which would sound to an emotional mind both mysterious and weird, end quote. From the standpoint of Epistem, the fact that these all too human-made mechanical devices, a number of which survive, undeniably provided the generatio anime at once cancels out the validity of the supernatural experience. Indeed, Paulson subtitled his report, A Chapter in the History of Religious Fraud. And Victoria Nelson goes on to write, To its practitioners, however, ventriloquism of the kind demanded by the bust of Epicurus, would not have been a ruse at all, but rather a tool by which the priest possessed by the god could give utterance to the god's words through the statue. That their belief in the experience of divine possession, even as they manipulated the statues, was genuine and not the cynical fakery assumed by modern researchers, is demonstrated by the example of the 5th century Alexandrian philosopher Heriscus, don't know if I'm saying that right, whose perception, according to the commentator Damascius was so finely tuned that he, quote, had a natural gift of discernment in regards to sacred images, whether they were alive or not. The moment he looked at one, if it were alive, he felt a stab of peculiar feeling go through his heart. His soul and body were both agitated, as if he were divinely possessed. If, on the other hand, he felt no such emotion, the image was a lifeless one, destitute of any divine spirit. It was in this way that he knew, by what may be truly called a mystical union with the deity, that the awful image of Aeon was inhabited by the god whom the Alexandrians worshipped, and who is Osiris and Adonis in one. What
0: I love about that is the reversal there. Again, there's that like modern to ancient inversion where the, yeah. the priest is talking into a tube and making it look like the statue is speaking. But for the ancient mind, the priest is the puppet. The priest is the tool of the god. The god is the statue, at least that's its physical incarnation, and uses the priest and the stone of the statue. All the material aspects of its representation are used for the god to manifest
1: itself. Exactly. Yeah. And so like somebody being like, see, fakery. It's like, it would be like some future archaeologist or historian discovering the evil dead. Right. Uh, the, well, no, that's not a good. That's not a good analogy. Well, I thought thought it would work, but I'm, I'm trying to find it too. But yeah, well, I'm trying to think of a good example, a good analogy, because it seems to me like there are such substitutions where we moderns will accept the reality, the emotional reality, or or, or whatever you want to call, it, but the basic reality, right, of something, even though. We know that some contrivance has been used to achieve the effect that nevertheless is real. Yes. The effect is real, even if the contrivance is just that, a contrivance. It's, I mean, we're like professional wrestling, like people who triumphantly announced that professional wrestling is fake. Totally missing the point. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, Yeah. It's even further, I think, because I think that the way that the ancients thought, it was precisely the reversal of how we think or at least we've turned our, way, our own way of thinking on, on its head, where is that the immediately knowable reality of the gods, right? Mm-hmm. Which even atheists in the ancient world believed in the gods. They just didn't think the gods mattered, but they yeah. still believed in the gods. The immediate unquestioned existence of a spiritual dimension with spiritual entities in it be it only the fact that we have minds to this day just boggles us. That might've been all they meant by the world of the gods, the world of mind, the world of meanings. The point is that the obvious reality of that other world enabled an interpretation of what's going on in a a contrivance like that, that was the complete opposite. Because what we want are material gods, right? So, but gods are spiritual. So uh, what we want is the God to be speaking through his own statue. Right? to so what we want to see, to believe, would be like, we'll peel away the statue and then we'll get an identical face, but it's the real God speaking through the statue. Whereas for the ancients, that whole contrivance is a device for allowing the God to be heard by humans. Mm. You know? It's a completely yep. different way of looking at it. And I think it is like you're saying, like when you watch a movie, it's the, what we call the suspension of disbelief. Which is the last yep. thing you do when you watch a movie. You're not suspending anything. You don't need to believe in a movie because the movie is real. <laughs> you know like it def- <laughs> it, it does- that's why people stop watching horror movies because it's going to keep playing until you stop watching it. You don't have to believe in a film, you know. It's so true. it's real in that sense of the puppetry sense that we've been talking about.
1: Yep. absolutely. Yeah.
0: Which is why I think maybe I'm still able to be scared by Evil Dead too, though I admit that it is a kind of, um, it's not the scariest film by any means. It's not even really trying to be scary, but it's so committed to its own aesthetic that it creates a new reality that contains its own form of horror.
1: Absolutely. That's well said. That's really good. What would you say to the proposition that Evil Dead 2 has Baroque aesthetics. That there's something Baroque about it. I'm not sure that that's true. I'm certainly not going to argue for it very hard. But nevertheless, it's a thought that occurred to me on this go-round.
0: I hadn't thought of it, but I, I think so. It's definitely a kind of plenum, right? It's it's just mm-hmm. chock full It's full of folds, you know. Like it's just yes, yeah. So I think yeah, it is very baroque for sure. It's certainly not a brutalist
1: film. (laughs) Like one of the things about baroque, as it is generally understood, is that it's simultaneously imposing and intricate. Something that's on a monumental scale. Something that makes like an enormous kind of overweening effect it's supposed to kind of overwhelm you it's big big outlines but at the same time containing within it intricately folded and refolded ornamentation exact decoration yeah it's full of lots of complications complexities crenellations but within something kind of imposingly vast and this is not an imposingly vast it doesn't have that kind of french baroque opera quality like you know i think of luli the operas of luli as the ultimate example of the baroque aesthetic Hmm. evil dead isn't imposing in that way but it has that kind of punked out wall of energy quality that it just hits you so fucking hard from the very opening bell And within that kind of blind onrush of energy, there's also just so much going on, so intricate. And the intricacies are Baroque also in the kind of sense of grotesque and uh, fanciful.
0: I think you're absolutely right. feverish
1: imagination.
0: One of the things that Raimi does extremely, extremely well is transitions between scenes. So that's when in a film, you want to cut from one scene to another. And if you can find some way of transitioning between scenes that brings in a kind of like parachronic to use your term parachronic continuity where you're, you're obviously moving ahead in time, but there's a, Mm -hmm. there's a common element that transitions you from one scene to the next. For example, you cut up and you see the moon come into the shot and then you go down from the moon and you're in a new scene, you know, like, like that that sort of thing. He does this constantly. And to me, that's a Baroque move in cinema. The Brutalist, oh, move, the brutalist move is the Kubrickian bang, cut, right? You yeah. cut with, with an absolute jump cut in time and space and you're somewhere else. Whereas Raimi is constantly folding scenes into one another through these, these nice. transitions. And so that gives it a Baroque feel to me. Another thing is in the script or in the action, there's an obsession in this film with things combining... Things breaking and coming together, like the, yeah, hand, the hand gets cut off and is replaced with the chainsaw. The preeminence of tools and objects mm. in the film, how objects are used and how objects combine with ash to create kind of new, he's, all, he's essentially a kind of new being at the end with his shotgun and his, and his chainsaw. He's become a kind of uh, machine himself, right? Uh, yes. An android of sorts with, a, yeah. with his chainsaw arm. All that to me is also very Baroque the diorama-like feeling of the whole thing, the way the characters feel like, like they're all of a piece. Like the characters are made of the same stuff as the props because he can just bounce right off the floor when he falls yeah. like 20 feet. And he, he's not made of a different stuff from the puppets and the, the objects in the scene. And in other words, he's just a, a particular type of fold in a fabric, which includes the objects in the film and the characters. They're all made of the same cloth. They're just folded differently. So all that to me makes it a very burro film. I think it's a wonderful observation. We could get a lot of mileage out of that that idea, I think. Yeah.
1: I I wonder if Sam Raimi knows that he
0: made a Baroque film.
1: Well, this is, I mean, Baroque is such an interesting period concept. I was looking at a book called Baroque Modernity, which is about.
0: Yeah, I've heard about that book.
1: Yeah, Baroque Modernity and Aesthetics of Theater by Joseph Sermatory.
0: Yeah, I heard Cermatory? him on. Um, he was on Entitled Opinions, a wicked podcast that I recommend to everyone. So you can look him up. On that podcast. Great interview. Okay.
1: Yeah. Very good. Yeah. And I heard about this book, I think, for, actually, from the Weird Studies fan discord. But in any event, he's talking about the survival of Baroque into modern theater. And the received idea of modernism is that it has nothing to do with the Baroque. So, where the Baroque is uh, full of exuberant excess and lushness and whimsy. A lot of those details we're talking about are like whimsical details or grotesque details. Mannerism is a neighbor concept that we could invoke where the detail exists at the expense of some kind of apprehension of a larger logically bound whole. Um
0: the, the, the cab know, the cabin being bigger on the inside than the outside is a mannerist move. Right? Yeah. Because it's yeah. serving the immediate needs of the narrative rather than some idea of the whole.
1: Yeah. And Cermatory or, or Chermatori says, essentially, as I understand it, I have not read the entire book, Baroque turns up in the modern, perhaps surprisingly, as kind of one of its shadows and one of its constituent elements. At least that's as much as I was able to glean from my very brief reading this morning. But on this account, the Baroque becomes almost like a historical spirit. You know, if we're thinking like strict historicists, this is a a dangerous move to make because as a historicist, we always want to find a line, a lineage of transmission where, you know, A begat B and B begat C and C begat D, so on and so on until we get to the modern age and there's some strain or tradition of the Baroque in the modern. That would be an acceptable way to think about it, but that does not appear to be the argument in this book. My way of thinking about the Baroque is that it's almost sort of like a spirit that kind of is inherent in art making and it's just always waiting to surface. And it surfaces, I believe, in this film. Maybe another reason why I think of it as a somewhat Baroque aesthetic in this film is because also in music, particularly, in the high modern period, the period in the first decades of the 20th century, in the 20s and 30s, in what was generally called neoclassical, associated with most famously Igor Stravinsky, but there were many other composers who were doing the same kind of thing, there's a self-conscious return to Baroque musical style, to the style of Bach and Mm. similar composers. And in a musical context, Baroque, as like neo-Baroque, is something that makes an uncanny return within the modern. What it brings back with it is always a sort of a, Like a de Chirico modern, the modern of like ancient statues uncannily and eerily repositioned in an alien landscape. Yeah. Classical statues with blank eyeballs, the past as a weird objet trouvée. Yeah. Something you find and pick up and it radiates this kind of weird meaning, you know, meaningfulness for a dead culture that somehow has survived incongruously into the present. There was always a little bit of that feeling of the Baroque, and that aspect of neo-Baroque aesthetics always had within it a very strong formalism, to return to that motive that I introduced earlier. So to the degree that there's a kind of a formalism, and I am using that term in a complimentary way, a beautiful formalism in Evil Dead 2, perhaps that's one thing also that kind of suggests uh, Baroque
0: to me. Absolutely. I also think that the idea of the Baroque or the spirit of the Baroque gives us some insight into this idea of materiality we we're talking about, right? Because the, the Baroque is a, it's an attempt to reconfigure the material. The amount of effort that was put into making stone look like, I don't know, a kind of liquid almost, uh, very malleable. Uh, there are no sharp corners. It's very mm-hmm. much about You know, making everything smooth and folding everything, right? Yeah. And so making stone look like flesh. (laughs) You know, there's an old spell in Dungeons and Dragons called stone to flesh, which is really gross because you can cast it in the dungeon to get through a wall or something. You just turn a part of the wall into flesh and you cut your way through it. (laughs) But it's also reversible as flesh to stone. But that that to me, stone to flesh, flesh to stone is very much a Baroque thing. Fashion, Baroque fashion, right? With the pompadours and the, the costumes and the powder there's an attempt there to turn the human into a kind of doll, a kind of puppet, and to blur the line between the human and the non-human in a very interesting way. Some of the roots of the Baroque, from what I know, are in the Counter Reformation, the Catholic Counter-Reformation, where they were trying to make Catholicism relevant to uh, a new age of rationalism. And so what they chose as their tool for doing that was the aesthetic. So suddenly the mass became a hyper-aesthetic Event. Hmm. The Jesuits really developed this aesthetic uh, through theater. There was a whole kind of Jesuit theater scene. Wow. The point is to transform this world into an image of the other world where everything is spirit, right? Because one of the fundamental doctrines of Christianity is that with the second coming, the entire cosmos gets translated into spirit but remains material. Everything is given a divine mystical body, everything becomes divinized, but everything also remains distinct. So you have this new world that's neither material nor spirit, but both and neither. And um, I think that the Baroque might be, uh, this is just me intuiting, but might be an attempt to, to show us a glimpse of this world, which if you look at it from one angle, it looks like a world of animatronics and puppets. From another angle, it looks like uh, a world of spiritualized matter, you know? Wonderful. And that's Evil Dead
1: <laughs> too. <laughs>
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and, of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre Yves Martel. And the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.